Welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast with me, Toby Webb, and joining me today to talk about climate change and wine is Dr. Alistair Nesbitt, who is the CEO of Vinescapes. Uh, so good morning, Alistair. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Very good. Tell us about Vinescapes. What is it that you do? Uh, Vinescapes is a, a, a research-based consultancy um, that advises new and uh, existing uh, great growers around uh, the UK, um, parts of Europe and other, other parts of the globe in uh, best practice for sustainable wine production, uh, best practice in terms of setting up, establishing and running a vineyard and also ad hoc consultancy around uh, viticulture uh, and elements of winemaking and winery construction and design. Now you have a PhD in viticulture and climate science. Are there many others that you've come across who have that qualification that seems like a fairly new thing it, it is i think i think globally you could probably count on count on two hands the sort of the number of people who've got phds specifically in viticulture and climate change um i'm the only person that i know of that's got a phd in climate change and viticultural impacts on the uk which is where i'm based um so it is quite niche but it's a growing area of interest uh, we've got a high high value product which has been markedly affected by recent climate change and of course there are projections as to what the impacts may be going forward which is an area we're very interested in and we also feel as a business it's an area that is integral to the advice we give in other words we're not just advising clients or regional bodies on impacts now but on what might likely happen in the future so that they can build and plan and be more resilient going forward as wine wine businesses. Well, focusing on the UK, climate impacts are predicted to, to vary regionally. Uh, what are we already seeing in the UK in, in your experience and what is the, what's the science telling us? Well, the, the UK is absolutely fascinating because if you look at the science that's been published on climate change and viticultural impacts globally, the vast majority of it focuses on areas where climate change is putting a growing region under stress, where there are challenges from, for example, extreme heat lack of rainfall, bushfires, etc. There's really very little looking at what you could perversely call the opportunistic end, the areas of the globe where grapes are now being grown that are benefiting from climate change. And the UK is one of those areas. We've seen an absolute explosion of viticulture over the last 10 to 15 years, and that's underpinned by warming growing season temperatures. And we've evidenced this. We've looked at Met Office data and other data sets, and we've been able to look at the growing season conditions over the last 20 years or so. And we've seen just how much warmer the growing seasons are compared to what they were. Let's take, take, take in a, an average mean of like, you know, take, take 1961 um, to 1990, which is a 30 year mean climate period that a lot of climatologists use. Compare the conditions then to now, we've seen almost a one degree Celsius increase in the growing season temperature. That may not sound like much, but that's the difference between growing either old varieties such as Reichensteiner and Muller-Turgau and newer, more commercially attractive varieties that have been grown in the UK now, such as Chardonnay, Meunier, Pinot Noir, etc. Or it's the difference between not being able to grow grapes commercially at all and being able to grow them. So this warming uh, trend that we're seeing has really helped underpin the growth of a sector that is now the fastest growing agricultural sector in the UK. What about rain though? Because when I've looked at those climate models, they also indicate increased amount of rainfall, flooding, etc. That can't be good. Well, 
you're, you're right to point out um, that rain in the UK in particular is problematic for grape growers, particularly around flowering, which is kind of June in, in, in July. Um, when you get rainfall that time of year, it can really affect flowering, which negatively affects, affects yields. And you're also right to say that actually, if you look at the climate trends, the overall precipitation amounts during the growing season haven't actually changed that much over the last 50 years or so. Looking forward, the projections are that we will see a slight decrease in much of the growing region um, for rainfall during the growing season. The kind of rainfall I think you're talking about relates more to extremes. So why we may see no change or a slight decrease, what we are hearing and what we're seeing in the models is that rainfall may be less frequent, but it may be more intense. Now, the question of whether that's a good thing or bad thing really comes down to when it occurs, and we're not quite sure yet what the implications are. Yeah, volatility is key, isn't it? I mean, I must have interviewed 50 or more winemakers in the last five or six years, and volatility is the one thing they all agree on. Yeah, uh, I, 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 absolutely. And, and and this is, again, I'm just talking about the UK because that's sort of a specialist area, but you're absolutely right. Those trends of warming that I talked about earlier, it's not a direct linear trend. You will see variability year on year. And that is something that growers need to manage. But where the base level is warm enough to be ripening commercially viable grapes, it makes managing that variability a little bit easier compared to when the base level means that in some years you can't even ripen grapes. Um, that said, what's really important, and again, this is specifically for the UK, is that anybody thinking of growing grapes in the UK or anybody who grows grapes in the UK will know that ultimately we're an island of weather. And that means regardless of the underlying climate trends, we get a lot of variability year on year. And that's intra-annual variability. In other words, variability during the growing season from one year to the next and inter-annual variability one year is very, very unlikely to be the same as the previous year. Unlike, for example, California or Saint-Emilion in Bordeaux in France, we don't have the consistency of climate and the reliability of climate that you might find in those regions. And that's probably why, as English, we love talking about the weather. And when you put the news on or when you open a paper, weather's almost always there. We're an island of weather with five or six weather patterns, always competing for space over the UK, and that make, gives us the variability. And that variability is drawn out when you look at the yield variability in the UK. We can go from years like 2012, where you get about six-ish or just under six hectolitres a hectare of wine, to years like 2018, where you can have uh, circa 40 hectolitres per hectare. Still low by international standards, but the point being that the variability between the low and high yielding years is really high. Yes, people often forget you can't get more than about 160 kilometres from the sea anywhere in the UK, as far as I'm aware. Um, Alistair, just contrast that with us then, for us briefly, with, say, um, Spain, France or Italy, that their models for climate are very, very different, aren't they? That They are, that's right. Um, so I think, as I said earlier on, we're, we're focusing, I suppose, on the opportunistic, you know, the, the, the positive ends of climate change, certainly for vine growing in the UK. But let's not remember there are areas, old world areas, more established areas that actually see climate change as a real threat. And rightly so, because if you look at changes that have occurred over the last 30, 40, 50 years, and then you look forward to the projections for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, um, 
it's quite frightening and it's it, it's becoming increasingly risky in some areas to grow grapes and um, the general consensus is that you know areas within mediterranean regions or old established areas in in southern europe are going to see much more extreme heat much more drought um, and many more uh, events, heat or drought related during the growing season that are problematic for vine growing. And those events, and uh, although they're borne out by climate change and weather, they have a much bigger impact on production um, in the sense that they have a knock-on effect to uh, disease pressure, for example, to potentially uh, requiring growers to look at changing varieties um, or changing the way that vines are grown either of which may well be doable, but many of the old traditional areas are tied into specific grape varieties and that is what they have a reputation for. And if you start talking about changing varietals, let's say moving away from Merlot in Saint-Emilion, that might be viticulturally viable to do so, but you've got to take a whole market and a whole culture along with you to enable you to still re retain that commercial viability and reputation. I wonder if there's still a bit of misunderstanding out there from, from winemakers about climate change. I was at an event a year or so ago, pre-COVID, a year and a half ago, where um, one of the top Rioja producers said, um, "Water, lack of water will get us before climate change does. And I thought, hang on a minute, that, I think that is climate change. <laughs> um, do you find there's still a bit of a misunderstanding about the, the complex science by, by your average viticulturalist? That, yeah, we, we, we do in practice, um, but we also think it's it's fairly understandable. And the main reason being that as a grower, when somebody talks to you about climate, your automatic default is probably to think about weather. And that's because your horizon in terms of planning your workload is tomorrow or next week, maybe next month, at a push the season. Very rarely are you looking much further than that. And so what happens during that year is that um, you'll be somewhere on that curve of variable on that graph of variability maybe a bumpy year maybe a poor year you might have acute events um you might have more chronic events during that year um but often when we talk to growers about climate change it's difficult to see the long quite difficult for them to see the longer term projections and one of the things that we do within both business community and the academic community is to kind of get people to stand back and look at the data and look at the trends and start to plan for the future in some ways, that's easier to do in somewhere like the UK, where you're starting at a, 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 a base level of people planting from scratch and looking forward to the 30-year lifespan of a vine. If you're in an area that's already established, you've already got your vineyard up and running. There's an element of how much variability can your business model accommodate or how much do you actually need to, to fundamentally change what you're doing um, and start replanning for the future. Thanks. Um, let me ask you a quick question about genetic diversity. Um, there are those that argue a more diverse gene pool across your vineyards is a good partial defence against climate change in the sense that, you know, if diseases are going to become more prevalent in some cases, partly due to climate change, having less you know, genetic monoculture of, uh, is a defence against that. And that's something that, you know, the, the, the sort of sustainable wine movement, I suppose, has promoted in many cases. Do you see that as adding up at this stage or is it too early to tell? Um, I, I think there's, there's more and more resources out there to help growers understand um, the value of diversity, both in terms of varieties, 
clones of varieties, rootstocks that maybe are more drought tolerant, etc., cetera, um, planting structures. Um, and, and to be honest, you can learn a lot of that just by looking at other regions. So taking an analog approach and saying, okay, if we're going to increase temperatures by one degree during the growing season in the next 30 years, um, and our rainfall is going to be X, Y, Z, look for other regions that have already in those conditions and see what they're doing, which is, is something that I think is already happening in, in parts of France, like Saint-Emilion, where they're looking to see what are the ideal conditions for which, sorry, what are the ideal varieties for the conditions they've got now and in the future? I think generally in terms of um, increasing biodiversity and therefore genetic diversity within a vineyard environment, um, I think there still needs to be, there is there is an increasing body of work coming through, but there needs to be a lot more work done to understand what the buffer effect that may have um, to buffer against climate change impacts and also what type of biodiversity do you want to increase in your environment. Just as an example, in the UK, there's a lot of talk about using inter-row and undivine cover crops as a mo at the moment to increase biodiversity, but they could bring with them increased humidity. And if we're moving into a, a climate condition where we have warmer temperatures and more extreme rainfall events, that might be undesirable. So I think part of the other part of this discussion about genetic diversity in vineyards needs to be looked at on a very localized case by case basis. Understood. Now, this may be an overly simplistic question, but it's one lots of people are wondering about when we hear about these new grape varietals being allowed um, in Bordeaux, for example. And I think Tariga Nacional is one of them. Mm -hmm. When are we going to start seeing because of climate change, that those those um, those grapes turn up in wines in sufficient quantity that they might be on the label. And I know that's quite crystal ball, isn't it? But I think a lot of people are wondering about that. Um, maybe some people are thinking, oh, I better stock up on Bordeaux uh, because in 30 years' time, it won't, or 20 years' time, or when, yeah. we don't know, you know, it'll, it'll be a different set of grapes. I mean, what's your prediction um, I, on that? I think we might start to see some come, come through in the next 10 to 20 years. Um, it, it, you know, if we look at areas of the world that are now at the top end of suitability for the varietals they've got growing and they're looking to the next 30 years for replanting um yeah I, I i think it might be sooner than we think um of now the, there's a big challenge there and that challenge is ultimately it depends on what they're allowed to do or not um but you could look at somewhere like the uk and you could say well actually it's only in the last 10 10 years, you've started to see, you know, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Meunier coming through. Pre-2004, -pre they were not the dominant varieties in the UK. So when they were planted, people probably thought, well, that's, you know, a bit, a bit nuts, isn't it? A bit hopeful. But now they're the dominant variety making, varietals making up 70% of planting. So I don't think as soon as someone's allowed to plant them and they're allowed to grow them and bottle them, I think we'll start to see those grapes, wines coming through. But the question is, if you've got an area that's known for a particular wine style and a particular variety, the initial question is what is the adaptive capacity of the grower, the vineyard or the region to keep growing those varieties? In other words, again, what could be done to buffer against the impact of climate change? Do you need to change variety? Is that the only answer? And that's a question, again, that needs to be looked at on a case by case, region by region. So um, what are some of the things you've seen then on that in terms of adaptation? You know, we've heard about, you know, shade canopy shading. We've heard about different um, techniques to try and mitigate excessive heat in the vineyard and so on. Uh, are there some tips and tricks that you've seen occurring perhaps uh, more consistently than before in recent years? 
Um, I think you've mentioned them, uh, some of them there. I think, you know, the, the other sort of practical um, things we've seen, such as uh, vines being sprayed with, with sunscreen or uh, mist or changing trellising systems, um, irrigation, you know, there's a sort of well-known practices that are out there in other regions of the world that could be adopted. I, I think the other area is probably one that's more to do with um, more to do with the structure and appellation rules that vines are grown in. So is there anything that could be done structurally to assist in um, uh, reducing sugar levels or dealkoalization, um, et cetera? So th there's both the practical, if you like, viticultural advice, and then there's the, the structural advice. And I think the question as to what happens when those two come together and what element of adaptation or buffer can be implemented um, it is something that regions really um, need to address and almost need to exhaust before they start thinking about new varieties or clones thereof. Just clarify a couple of points there for us. Um, sunscreen, you're not talking about the stuff you buy in the supermarket sprayed over vines, I assume. What, what, what do you mean by sunscreen? Uh, yeah, uh, well, it, well, it has a similar, similar effect. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't actually know what it's made up of, um, but certainly worth looking. I mean, if you look at um, part, parts of Australia, um, you know, vines are sprayed with, with a screen that gives them some kind of a coating to protect against sunburn. Um, so, you know, there's certainly um, products out there that can be used. Okay. And then the second point you made there, which is really interesting about um, regions sort of changing their rules to help viticulturalists uh, or, or wine producers adapt. Tell us a, a little bit more about what you meant there. You mentioned alcohol levels. I'm just curious to clarify. So, I mean, one of the things that we're, there's a piece of research ongoing now, and one of the things it's looking at is, um, well, say so there's a piece of research, several bits of research going on now, and they're looking at what the restrictions are in terms of um, alcohol levels in wine, where the wine can be dealkoholized, um, you know, where the yield uh, limits are too high or too low. And I think what we're talking about is um, whether the, whether some areas are locked in, they're locked into a particular um, wine style, grape variety maybe, way of making wine maybe, and it's locked in by regulation, in other words, by an appellation authority, for example, and whether those rules within those areas can be relaxed or more flexible or they can be changed to enable growers to make to, to grow grapes and make wine in, in a more flexible way that enables them to deal with the variability and the years of extreme heat or the years where there isn't enough water, um, etc. Got it. Thank you. Fascinating. Um, people think it's a technical solution that's always the first thing to look towards, but perhaps not always. That's very interesting. Uh, climate change also affects other parts of wine beyond grape growing. You and I had a conversation last week or the week before, I think, about barrel wood, for mm, example. Mm. Tell us a bit about that. I thought it was a fascinating example of how climate change affects things that we really don't think about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the supply chain as a whole, we have to remember, is a really important part of the wine production process. Um, and one of the key materials that is used in wine production, particularly, you know, red wine, um, is, is barrels or wood, um, oak. And climate change also raises question about the impact on that part of the supply chain, um, whether it's um, the speed at which 
an oak tree is growing or or not, or, or perhaps an oak tree is suffering, for example, because there isn't enough water or it's too hot, um, that will affect the, 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 the structure of the wood components that's used for barrels, or whether it's the drying process of the wood or the staves that are used for barrel making, um, if they dry too quickly, um, or should I say, sorry, if they season too quickly and there isn't enough moisture um, and the process is too rapid, they can crack, wood can crack or, or can split or can become suboptimal or um, potentially even not usable in the production of wine barrels. And that has a huge, huge yeah, financial cost to it. So one of the things we're looking at in terms of some consultancy work we're doing is how the seasoning conditions for wood has changed, how it may change in the future, and how, for example, if you're a barrel manufacturer, you can adapt to be more resilient to the changing climate conditions so that you can almost guarantee your clients you've got consistency and you're not at risk of the perils of climate change. Thank you. Um, what are your views on carbon capture from wineries? Because obviously we can talk about vineyards all day long and there are some studies I've seen that say, you know, perhaps it's only 25 to 30% of the GHG footprint can be in, in the vineyard, which is much lower than it can be for other agricultural products. But of course, wineries put out a lot of CO2 during fermentation. Um, and I recently interviewed Hervé Bell on the CEO of Montrose, where he was telling me about his carbon capture that he's doing. I'm very proud of that as a sort of lever of change and to get people, you know, motivated about sustainability at Montrose. But I spoke to another wine um, maker on, on the, also on the left bank of Bordeaux a few weeks later, and he said, oh, I'm not going to do that. It's a bit of a gimmick. I'm better off um, going biodynamic and sequestering more carbon in my soil. And that's my approach. What are your views? What's, what's your advice to clients on this sort of thing? Should they go carbon capture or, or should they just focus more on soil or both? Both, yeah, both indeed. Um, I, I'm no expert on carbon capture within wineries, uh, other than I know that it, that it can be done. And someone like the Robert Mondavi Institute in, in California have shown that, that you can capture um, carbon dioxide as, a, as an output of, of fermentation and, and bottle it and reuse it. Um, so I, I should imagine there's you know means of doing so, but I'm afraid I, I'm not an expert on you know the cost or the viability uh, or the scale implications of doing so. But um, it would seem to me that if you if, if it was feasible and if there is a cost effective way of doing so and there is value in having that CO2 that you could sell or reuse, um, it, it would be something that would be worth doing simply because it's another means of reducing your carbon footprint. Um, that said, um, as you kind of alluded to, um, vineyards generally operate as carbon sinks just because of the amount of photosynthesis that takes place within a vineyard environment. That said, I think there's probably a lot more that vineyards could do. Um, and that, that includes looking at options around having permanent um, inter-row, um, potentially even undervine cover, um, increasing biodiversity, um, not tilling, which is something that we're hearing more and more about. There's, there's a new regenerative viticulture foundation being established. I know on some of your, um, your, your, your events previously, we've heard more and more about regenerative viticulture. And I think there's an interest in understanding well, actually, beyond photosynthesis, beyond um, carbon sequestering through vines and other plants, what could we do if we're not um, tilling, ploughing soil on an annual basis or even more regularly? Um, what is the potential opportunity there and what could the impact be? Uh, the agricultural sector are a bit ahead of us in research into this, but there's a new area of climate change 
mitigation taking place to do with viticulture and that is to look at what the opportunity is for, for vineyards to adopt practices where carbon sequestration is encouraged within soils and critically whilst trying to maintain um, good quality and viable yields. Yes, thank you. I just uh, I just did a podcast with a long podcast last week with someone on a, an agricultural policy and science um, journalist uh, who claims that most of the wine world will not be able to go organic. So the regenerative organic side of things um, is is largely irrelevant in the long term. And his recommendation is that much more glyphosate should be used because that's a far more sustainable solution for, for no-till agriculture uh, on a large scale. So listeners, um, I won't ask Alistair to comment on that unless you want to, Alistair, but listeners, you can you can pick that up um, from Sustainable Wine Log podcast stream in the next week or two. Fascinating discussion about copper sulfate versus glyphosate. Um, I, I take no position. I, I, I certainly find it's an area I need to know much more about, I have to say, and, and um, you hear different things from different folks about it. A final question for you, Alistair. Um, 2021 is, is going to be a very big year for climate policy. We hope if if Boris and his uh, colleagues in the British government can convene a decent COP26. Big companies outside the wine industry are committing to two or 1.5 degree climate targets. The wine industry, of course, doesn't have that many really big companies, perhaps a handful. And, and even combined, they represent a fairly small proportion of, of overall sales. Um, so... When you when you meet clients and they say, "Well, what should we be committing to in terms of climate change?" What's your advice to them? Um, well, well, in terms of the the, the carbon account and carbon, carbon balance, it's it, it's often not discussed. Part of the reason being, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a standardised carbon calculator that, that vineyards and wineries can use, which makes kind of benchmarking quite challenging. Partly because, as you say, they're generally very small as individual growers, and people will say, "Well, quite frankly, you know, what wh what is the point? You know, what's the difference? Let's just do what we can without actually calculating it." Which is a model I think there's a lot of growers that's got got merit. Um, however, um, you're right in saying that there aren't necessarily, you know, huge individual vineyards, particularly like in somewhere like the UK, but there are, as a collective, big areas regionally or nationally or owned by conglomerates for example say let's say Pernod Ricard for example or Constellation um, that, that could implement a toolkit and a methodology for reducing overall carbon footprint um, I think that's perfectly doable um, it takes a bit of R&D to get going on that but it's it could be a criterion by which um, you know their vineyards are, are scored and managed and monitored um, I also think the wine industry has a huge supply chain and there's a lot of work that could be done to reduce the supply chain carbon footprint, um, be that, you know, everything from bottles to distribution to packaging, um, waste, etc. Um, and I think the general me message is that wine, unlike pot potentially some other crops, um, has a very discerning market and therefore a big opportunity to sell a story. And wine is quite often sold on a story. And therefore, the more that you can build into your business, um, sustainable best practice, carbon reduction, et cetera, you're, you're, you're putting yourself on a platform potentially above other growers, but you're also starting to get towards where I think a lot of consumers are coming from, which is they want to be assured that the products they're buying 
um, are produced in the most sustainable way that they can be without you know, degradation of quality or potentially quantity. Um, so I think the message is a little bit of do what you can. And yes, it might not be possible for smaller producers to um, carbon footprint um, and introduce a whole set of criteria that brings them carbon positive. Um, but as I say, there are bigger groups, there are regional bodies, there are national bodies, there are conglomerates of vineyards and there's a supply chain. And I think there's a huge capacity for change within those. Alistair, thank you. Um, I'll just finish off by pointing out there was a new study published uh, just recently in, in Nature Food Journal looking at uh, human-caused greenhouse gas emissions um, for the, up to the year 2015. And they note that food systems, which of course I think may include grape growing, yeah. um, was responsible for 34% of all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions in that year. Now that data is of course six years old because it takes time to review everything, but it's seen as one of the most comprehensive studies. Um, and actually one of the interesting things that comes out of it is that packaging for food seems to have a higher GHG footprint than transport, uh, which I found fascinating. Um, and the argument being that most of the core um, stuff that gets moved is being moved by, by road or rail rather than by by plane and that's the reason but it just goes to show there's an awful lot more to be done in the packaging area as well as in viticulture yeah. so um alistair thank you so much for your time today uh, listeners if you'd like to know more about Pleasure. how it work uh, just google vinescapes um and i believe alistair's agreed to speak at our viticulture conference which will be on the 22nd of june on zoom and that's going to be free so that's called um sustainability science in the vineyard it's on the 22nd of june on sort of European hours, and you can find out more about it on sustainablewine.co.uk. So come along to that and ask Alistair any follow-up questions you might like to. And in the meantime, Alistair, thanks a lot for your time and have a wonderful day.